You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conif Alinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Count Dracula was never a count, nor was he Transylvanian. He was Wallachian. It was a state just to the east of Transylvania. He was what the people of Wallachia called a Vavad. We in the West might most accurately understand this title as a sort of a duke. Wallachia was a sovereign state, but she gave her allegiance to one of two empires vying for control in the region. It was either the Kingdom of Hungary or the Ottoman Empire. Dracula's name was Vlad, and he got their family surname, Draculisti, from his father Vlad Dracul. It meant Vlad the Dragon, and Dracula meant Son of the Dragon. He spent many of his early years as a hostage to the Ottoman Sultan to ensure his father's good behavior and continued allegiance to the Ottoman Empire. Upon his release in 1447, young Vlad invaded his home country of Wallachia. There he usurped his brother, who was allied with the Ottomans, and massacred hundreds of local noblemen called boyars. Many of those boyars he had impaled, which earned him the moniker Vlad Tepish, or Vlad the Impaler. He then set about... Well, what he did was take his army to nearby cities and kill all of the Ottoman leadership there. If you were an Ottoman, this looked very much like an invasion. But if you were Hungarian, this looked more like a liberation. Now, Vlad the Impaler was a brutal, violent warlord. However, in the eyes of many in the Christian world, he was doing God's work and fighting the Turk. He was famously cruel, which would lead to Bram Stoker making him Count Dracula, but many in Europe thought cruelty against the Turk to be a fine thing. Now, Vlad Dracula doesn't have a part in our story of Caribbean piracy, but I'm doing a lot of reading on the Ottoman Empire right now. We'll be taking a look at the Empire when we talk about the Barbary Pirates but they do play a role in today's story. Beginning back in 1447, the story of Vlad Tepish illustrates just how old this conflict between Christian Europe and the Muslim world was. When Dracula was still alive, that conflict was already centuries old, and that fight was the fight for Europeans. 
whatever struggles might be happening inside Europe, they always came second. And King Louis XIV of France knew this. After the Franco-Dutch War, he was busy pressing his claims on territory that he'd won from the Spanish Netherlands. He had armies all across the region, snatching up countryside and smaller hamlets wherever he could. It was open aggression, but no one could really do anything to stop him. He was grabbing territory that, for the most part, rightly belonged to the Holy Roman Empire, but they were too busy fighting a war on their eastern border to contest it. By the 1680s, the Ottoman Empire was at its largest point ever. Hungary was basically in Ottoman hands, at least half of it was, and they were pressing their offensive into Europe. The Sultan had built up his armies, pushed them into Austria, and was preparing to attack Vienna itself. Now, Louis was perfectly happy to see the Habsburgs pressed on their eastern front. He refused to give them any help against the Turkish threat, and he even sent envoys to the Ottomans. Allegedly, he was even funneling money and perhaps material aid to them as well. They called the war that followed, the war that Louis declined to join, the War of the Holy Alliance. It's one of those seminal moments in European history. It was when a truly impressive alliance between the Holy Roman Empire, some of the Italian states, the Pope, and Russia, among many others, broke the wave of Ottoman expansion. Now, I keep calling them Ottomans here, and that's accurate. They are part of the Ottoman Empire, but don't think of them all as Turkish. Largely, they weren't. There were Turks there, but most of the Ottoman forces that were invading Austria were, well, there were Hungarians and Wallachians and Transylvanians and even Mongols, or at least the descendants of Mongols from the Crimean Khanate. The picture that I'm trying to paint here is an army made up of dozens of nationalities led by the Sultan, as well as the descendants of Genghis Khan and Vlad Dracula. That's who was invading Austria, and Louis XIV, the most Christian king, according to himself, was funneling them money and pecking at the Europeans defending against that threat. That's not a good look. So Louis decided to pull his troops back and quietly put the hostilities on pause. If he was unable to, for the moment, invade their empire to the east, there were other fronts on which he was able to attack the Habsburgs. Louis empowered and perhaps even encouraged his governors to hand out letters of mark against the Spanish in the New World. Perhaps his agents encouraged those privateers to attack the most critical centers of power in the Spanish Empire. Whether those agents did or not, though, using the privateers was a great plan. It allowed Louis to prosecute his ongoing war while keeping his hands clean. It's not a French attack if they're privateers with a legitimate grievance and a letter of mark. Now, I do wonder what Louis's wife, a Habsburg, thought about all this. She probably wasn't exactly thrilled that her husband refused to help out her family in the East, and she was probably equally unhappy when she heard he had empowered the pirates. But that's if that sort of thing concerned her at all. She was probably equally concerned about Louis's many affairs and the many diseases that he brought home. But Louis did empower the pirates in their attack on Veracruz, and when the Holy Alliance finally beat back the Ottoman incursion before the walls of Vienna, Louis decided it was time to re-engage the Holy Roman Empire and enforce his claim on their territory. And thus began the War of the Reunions. This is episode 54.
The War of the Reunions. Today's episode was very nearly Twilight of the Buccaneers Part 3, but this latter half of 1683, really only about a month in 1683, and The War of the Reunions really required a more in-depth look. See, The War of the Reunions is the real catalyst that ended the Bougainville Age. Last time, we talked about the summer of 1683 in the lives of de Graff, Grammont, and Anne. Today, we'll continue that look, but we're going to add in another player, a slightly more illustrious, august name than the others, Louis XIV of France. Now, Louis probably didn't know the names of our other three players. Maybe he'd heard of Michel de Grammont, who was, some historians have postulated, actually Sieur de Grammont, a chevalier or knight back in France. Maybe he'd heard of the Dutch pirate de Graaf, who sailed on the Armada de Barlavento under French colors and stole one of their ships right out from under Spanish noses. De Graaf was fairly famous, but still inconsequential. However, we can be fairly sure that Louis hadn't heard of Anne, who was at this point still just a French girl in Tortuga, working probably in a brothel and eventually finding love and getting married. But he would soon hear of all three. These aren't, though, names to remember for a man like Louis. They didn't have any real role in the great chess game being played in Europe. They were just pawns in the game. But his decisions would directly impact all three of them, and changed the course of their lives. It was in 1680 when Louis called the first Chamber of Reunions. It was a body formed to determine what rural land belonged to France after the treaties of Munster, the Pyrenees, a la Chapelle, and Nijmegen. These treaties all ended France's role in, respectively, the Thirty Years' War, the War of Devolution, and the Franco-Dutch War. All of them ceded cities to France, but exactly what rural lands were included with those cities was up for debate. These chambers of reunion, though, were tasked with making that decision. But really, in effect, it was a war council. They looked at the maps of the Spanish Netherlands and tried to decide what lands France could conceivably claim with the backing of their armies. There were obvious areas of surrounding farmland to each of the cities, but that wasn't what Louis was interested in. The chamber's primary goals were two cities, Luxembourg and Strasbourg. Both of them sat on waterways that created an easily defensible border. You see, Louis wanted to press his territorial gains all the way to the Rhine. It would mean war to press those claims, but it makes sense, really. The Rhine held a lot of emotional weight for the French, as the Rhine was the traditional border ever since the Frankish Carolingian Empire split up. It's also one of Europe's most important waterways, and would mean easy access to trade on the river. Most importantly, though, it was a strong natural barrier that was easily defensible. So the Chambers of Reunion decided it would be war. But... When the war inevitably ended and the inevitable treaty was signed, Louis would then be able to point to the Chambers of Reunion and say that he was legally allowed, no, obliged, to march his armies into those lands and enforce France's territorial gains. First up was Strasbourg. It was the only major garrison city in the Alsace region, and Alsace now belonged to France. However, Strasbourg didn't. It was officially supposed to be a free and independent city. It had been for 
many centuries now, but it was still technically a part of the Holy Roman Empire. In practicality, it was an easy entry point into France from the Holy Roman Empire. During the Franco-Dutch War, the Empire had used it three times for that very purpose. So on September 30th, 1681, France's army marched into Strasbourg. This was only three years after the Treaty of Nijmegen ended the Franco-Dutch War. They took the city with relative ease. France had a very large army and was able to surround the city. Negotiations, surrender, and annexation into France quickly followed. This wasn't the bloody conquest of medieval warfare or the pirates. France wanted Strasbourg as part of her own. They considered Alsace part of France, so they didn't want to subjugate and brutalize the people there. Indeed, when Louis cracked down on Protestantism and the Calvinist Huguenots a few years later through the Edict of Nantes, Strasbourg was exempted from the edict because it was, in its way, still a free and independent city. That was also a bone to the people of Strasbourg, who were still only tentatively part of France. But then Louis turned his attention to Luxembourg. He ordered Marshal Louis-Francois Boufflet to march on the city with several artillery units and bombard the walls of Luxembourg. Now, Luxembourg wasn't a free and independent city. It still belonged to the Habsburg dynasty. Technically, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but it was practically under Spanish control. But then, just as his army was about to make its move on Luxembourg, hundreds of miles away, the Ottoman Empire invaded Austria. Now, that whole conflict is fascinating. I won't go into too much detail here, though. In short, Hungary, just to the east of Austria, was a collage of different ethnic groups and religions, much like it is today, really. There were Muslims and Jews and Catholics and Protestants of all different stripes. There were Greek Orthodox Christians and even a handful of ancient steppe religions. The Catholic world, under Holy Roman Emperor Leopold and the Pope, was trying to bring Catholic hegemony to the region. On the other hand, the Ottomans promised a relative sense of religious liberty and were busy funding all of the various religious rebel factions. Basically, anyone that wasn't Catholic was part of some small uprising. France, in addition to treating with the Ottomans, was perhaps secretly funding some of those rebel factions as well. Now, Louis was a Catholic, to be sure, but trouble in the region there meant trouble for the Habsburgs, and that was always good to Louis' mind. In the midst of all that turmoil, the Ottoman sultan sent his armies in and quelled all of the warring factions. He brought them under one roof, an Ottoman roof. Then, when the Ottomans were firmly in control, all of them were mobilized, and they were pushed into Austria to invade. That picture of Mongols and Transylvanians under the Dracolisti and Turkish armies that I mentioned earlier will throw in a dash of the Huns and give them all firearms and cannons. That was what marched on Vienna. Imagine the armies that marched on Rome with guns. So, naturally, Louis couldn't, in good conscience, or really good form, continue his assault on Luxembourg. It looked really bad for a Catholic king to attack his Catholic brothers, even when they were enemies, when they were facing a force like that. So, Louis pulled his armies back to Strasbourg, he reinforced the lines, and he set about figuring out exactly where he could attack. A few months later, 
in March 1683 on a totally unrelated note, not at all connected to the conflict in Europe in any way, a fleet of pirates met in the Bay of Honduras under Michel de Grammont and Lorho de Graaf. They had a French letter of marque from Governor Jacques Nevoux to attack Spanish cities in the West Indies. That Louis was prevented from attacking Spanish Habsburg territory in Europe had absolutely nothing to do with the 1,000, mostly French, private contractors that sailed on Veracruz in May. I mean, sure, it would disrupt Spanish shipping and silver fleets from reaching Europe for several months and keep soldiers in Vienna from getting paid, which nearly led to a mutiny that almost derailed Vienna's defense before it had begun, but Louis had nothing to do with that. It was just these privateers, little more than pirates, really, and they did have a legitimate grievance, or at least a Dutchman who would be killed before returning home had a grievance, but it was an entirely unrelated attack. Louis swore to it. Last time we detailed that summer of 1683, after the attack on Veracruz. If you haven't listened to that yet, I suggest you do so. But the West Indies were relatively quiet that summer. But in Austria, things were at their hottest. The combined Ottoman forces made their move on Vienna. That Battle of Vienna was one of the greatest battles in history. It may have been the height of land warfare up until Waterloo, and arguably it held that title until World War I came along and changed everything. It's complex, and it's epic, and I won't go into detail here, but I urge you to Google it or go to the website and look at some of the paintings of that battle. I will share the end of it, though. The Ottoman forces had dug trenches to avoid cannon fire, and from those trenches they got sappers under the city walls to try and blow them up with black powder. The siege was weeks long, and the inhabitants were near to starvation, but on the 11th of September, 1683, a Polish-Lithuanian army arrived, shortly followed by the Holy Roman Imperial Army. Those two armies caught the Ottomans in a pincer move. They had huge combined forces of artillery and infantry squeezing the Ottomans between them. They left a way out for the Ottomans, though, a means of escape for the Ottoman army away from the city. When the Ottomans took that way out, as any army would, the Polish cavalry emerged from the tree line above them. What follows was the largest cavalry charge in all the recorded history, 18,000 horse. There were Lithuanian Tartars and Polish-winged Hussars and German and Italian and Austrian knights. They all stormed down on the Ottomans, breaking their ranks and forcing them into full retreat. This cavalry charge marked the beginning of the end for the Ottoman occupation in Eastern Europe. And it was also the beginning of an alliance between Germany and Austria and Hungary and Poland and Russia that would last in one form or another essentially until World War I. It's been portrayed as the great battle for Christendom against the Turk in much the same way that Tours has. I think it's more complex than that, but the Polish general there summed up the attitude of the assembled Catholic forces when he said, quote, Vini, vidi, Deus victi. I came, I saw, God conquered. Meanwhile, on the other side of the empire, Louis XIV enjoyed the days in his gardens and evenings with his mistresses. He was asked to join the Great Alliance, but he had declined. His army was perfectly happy sitting there in Alsace, just near Luxembourg. They were resting, and they were waiting. But Louis hadn't been entirely idle. 
he had recalled Governor Jacques Nebvoux to France to discuss the privateer raid on Veracruz. Now, this could be seen in a number of different ways. Louis might hope that those in Spain saw it as him dressing down one of his governors, removing him from office and bringing him back to France to be dealt with. More likely, though, the Spanish saw it as what it was, just a bit of political theater. And it was also an opportunity for Louis to learn more about just what these pirates, excuse me, privateers, what they were capable of. Queen Elizabeth I of England has often been called the Pirate Queen. Now, I think she earned that title, but I would argue that Louis could, in the same vein, be called the Pirate King. His use of privateers in the Franco-Dutch War was second to none. There were a lot of English and Dutch rovers around, but France had more than both of them combined. And then, after the war, only France still continued to hand out letters of marque, and they did so almost with impunity. They did when Von Horn, Grammont, and de Graaf attacked Veracruz, and, well, they were preparing to do so again. Last time, we talked about the return of the pirates to Petit Guave and the tense situation that arose when the acting governor discovered that de Graaf had sold all of his slaves in Port Royal. De Graaf marched on the governor's manor with more than a hundred men, and the governor capitulated to the pirates. But when Grammont returned with hundreds of slaves, the governor was sated, and all the talk in Petit Guave was of where the pirates would attack next. Names were thrown about like Campeche or Maracaibo or Santo Domingo, maybe. Of course, the governor would have to give his leave for the attack and a commission, but that was coming soon enough. For now, though, King Louis was back at war. He had paused to allow the Habsburg forces time to deal with the Turkish threat, but as soon as Vienna was safe and the Ottomans on the run, Louis re-entered the fray. His army, now under Louis de Cravant, Duc de Humer, marched from Alsace towards Luxembourg, in Spanish territory. Spain, who was pulling her troops back from the Battle of Vienna across the empire, received word of Louis' actions and declared war on France on 26 October 1683. Now, it took time for news to travel in 1683. However, in under two weeks, the governor of Saint-Dominique had given Lorho de Graaf a new commission and orders to sail. It happened at almost the same moment. Spain declares war, and de Graaf had orders to sail. See, this wasn't a privateering raid, and it certainly wasn't piracy. This was, I would argue, a military operation. Lorho de Graaf was to serve as admiral of a French fleet with a capital A. Now, all the typical privateer stuff was there. They would sack a city, they would take plunder and reap the profits. That's how they would be paid. But they were under orders from the governor, and those orders came from the highest levels of the French government. De Graaf was working for the crown. They were ordered to attack Santiago de Cuba, on the southwest coast of Cuba. It was strategically an important target that would upset Spanish shipping and occupy the Spanish in the West Indies while Louis prosecuted the war back in Europe. Lorho de Graaf would be sailing, though, without Michel de Grammont. Everyone expected the two pirates to leave together, but Grammont stayed there in Petit Guave. Perhaps he didn't fancy working for the crown. However, de Graaf wasn't sailing alone. There were seven other ships with him. All of them were pirate vessels. 
Mikhail Andrizun was there, as were Pierre Le Picard, Jan Willems, Francois Lesage, and a Captain Francois Groinet. They were expected, to be sure, but there was a new player in the mix, and he was a source of contention. While Lorho de Graaf was the admiral and had absolute command at sea, he was forced to share his command overall. Major Jean Legoff, Sieur de Beauregard, was given command of all of the forces on land. He was to plan and execute the attack against Santiago in conjuncture with de Graaf, but he would have command once they landed. These kinds of arrangements always seem to turn out poorly. Those land commanders tend to see themselves as actually in charge. In their minds, the admirals and their ships are just there to get the soldiers from point A to point B. So they try to exert command, to prove that they are truly in charge, and it always goes badly. And this was no exception. See, here's the thing. Privateer ships were being used to transport the soldiers, but all of the privateers themselves were still there. The captains, the quartermasters, the bosuns, all of the crew, well, they were still on board, they were still running the ship. But then they had a bunch of French regulars acting like they owned the place and some army major barking out orders like he was in command. But these were their ships. These privateers had a code, they had a vote, and... They earned an equal share. They weren't accustomed to doing whatever some big-shot major told them to do, not on their ship. Of course, that big-shot major did give out orders, as though this were his mission, as though this were his ship and these were his men. And he got ignored. Probably he got laughed at. They were free men. They were brethren of the coast. They wouldn't even take those kinds of orders from de Groff, and they respected him. So, Major Jean Le Goff did what you do when some insubordinate underling balks at his orders. He ordered one of the men hauled to the deck where he would be put before the mast and receive lashes as punishment. This was incredibly stupid. Just monumentally obtuse. Astronomically idiotic. The dictionary doesn't have enough words to describe how painfully foolish this move was. These privateers had worked on merchant ships. They had served in His Majesty's Royal Navy. They knew the pain of the lash, and they knew the humiliation that came with it. But they'd thrown that yoke off, and now they ran the show. They had no masters. And they weren't about to accept either orders or the lash from this puffed-up buffoon. I'm really trying here to illustrate this scene and keep the language PG, but to be sure, the pirates started throwing out language that was harsh when they saw that one of their comrades was being hauled to the mast to be whipped bloody. Exactly what follows isn't recorded, but I tend to think that Lorho de Graaf probably tried to tell the Major what was going to happen if he went through with this, how incredibly dumb it was. He probably yelled and stormed at the Major and then was coolly shut down. The Major was going to teach these men respect and discipline, which was evidently lacking in them. Then, I imagine, the Groff left the deck, fully aware of what was going to occur. I wonder if the Bucanyi, who was being hauled away, ever actually made it to the mast. Was there a period of several tense moments when his arms were strapped and tied, when his shirt was cut off of his body, 
And when the Major produced a lash? Did the pirates sit back and wait? Did they silently grab their weapons and await that first crack of the whip? Was there a crack of the whip, and was it followed by the sound of a single gunshot? Perhaps it was by de Graff himself from the quarter-deck looking down, which was a signal for the men. More probably, though less dramatically, there was likely shouting and shoving and cursing as the condemned pirate was brought forward, and then one of the pirates probably pulled his knife, slashed at one of the men carrying his comrade, or stuck it into his belly. I imagine that erupted into a flurry of drawn blades and pistols from both sides when soldiers and pirates faced each other down on deck, and then it fell into fighting. When the fighting was over, was the major condemned to the lash himself, was he tied to the mast and whipped over and over and over until he bled to death? Did the regular soldiers, who were outnumbered and outgunned and, frankly, nowhere near as skilled at shipboard combat as the pirates, did they resist or did they surrender? Or did they decide to join up with the pirates? Most of that we don't know. What we do know is that a mutiny occurred when the Major tried to discipline that pirate, the Major was killed, and the mission to Santiago de Cuba fell apart. That mission, ordered by the governor, backed by the king and his war council, was over. The fleet was less than a day out from Petit Guave. Back in Europe, things were going better for the French in the Spanish Netherlands, or, in France's eyes, French Flanders. On November 3rd, French forces under Louis de Cravant, Duc de Humer, surrounded the fortress known as Courtrec or Courtrai. Three days later, the fort capitulated and the French occupied the fort city. Another four days later, the French army arrived at Dixmude, who again surrendered quickly. And I should apologize to any Belgian, Flemish, or Dutch speakers who might be listening for my clumsy tongue stumbling over what I'm sure are beautiful names. While all this was going on, though, the pirates under Lorho de Graff and Mikhail Andrizun, Picard, Lesage, Groinet, Willems, all the rest, well, they were dealing with the fallout from their mutiny. And this was a mutiny. Writers, especially Victorian historians when there was a surge of interest in piracy, well, they were fond of calling every change in leadership among the pirates a mutiny. They had trouble processing that the pirates were entirely within their rights and they were exercising a vote most of the time. But on this occasion, they had accepted a commission from the French governor at Saint-Dominique. They were to escort and aid a French army major to Santiago, and then they'd killed him. What happened to the French regulars that accompanied him is unclear. They all might have been killed, but probably not. Considering what's going to happen later on, the probable explanation is that de Graff explained the situation to them, he explained to these French soldiers exactly what the Brethren of the Coast were, what they were about, and how they did things. He then told them that they were still going to attack the Spanish. Those soldiers could take part in that voyage. They could complete their mission, as it were, if they chose, but they could also sit it out. But if they interfered, they would be killed. But that's all speculation. What we do know is that the pirate fleet set sail, but not the relatively short distance to Santiago de Cuba. They sailed due south. 
to lay anchor just off the coast of modern-day Colombia, very near the port city, Cartagena. I just adore Lorjo de Graff. His distinction as the greatest of the freebooters was well-earned. If any of the buccaneers outstripped him, it was Henry Morgan, but even that's up for debate. Veracruz hadn't been successfully raided since Francis Drake, and yet de Graff took the city under cover of darkness with only 300 men. Cartagena hadn't been attacked since Francis Drake. And back then, in 1586, Cartagena was just a port. An important port, yeah, but just a port. And Spain didn't have any real concern for English pirates at the time, which really didn't exist. England had no presence in the West Indies in 1586, so it came as a surprise when Drake attacked. After that raid, though, Cartagena built up their defenses. Spain contracted the Italian architect Bautista Antonelli to design port defenses for their West Indian colonies. In Cartagena, Antonelli designed and oversaw the San Felipe de Barajas Castle, then the San Sebastian de Pastillo Castle, and then the San Fernando Fort. Then Antonelli would move on to Panama, where he would suggest moving the colony from Nombre de Dios to Portobello. They had better natural defenses, and he would also design the fortifications there, as well as Havana, where he built the fortress El Moro. In 1631, Governor Francisco de Morga, back in Cartagena, began a project to turn the inner bay into, quote, an impregnable lagoon, end quote. De Morga added four new forts. He built new walls that were both around the city and that separated the city into defensive quadrants, and then he put three new gun batteries around the city that made approach by either sea or land entirely impossible. If you remember when William Dampier and John Cook and that lot passed by Cartagena, they were filled with a sense of awe. That was because, well, nobody attacked Cartagena. I've put pictures up at the website of the defenses in Cartagena, and I suggest you take a look. These are impressive castles, and intimidating. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. 
please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Now, Portobello still occasionally did get raided, but only by the best privateers. But Havana and Cartagena? Never. Not Lelonay, not Morgan, nobody attacked them. A few pirates did try to attack Havana or Cartagena, but you might notice we don't remember their names, because none of them survived the attempt. It was common knowledge that trying your luck against those cities was madness. Still, Lorho de Graff and his crew, well, they were willing to try. Exactly why they were willing to try for Cartagena against overwhelming odds Well, that's a decent question to ask, and there are a number of potential answers. These pirates were, first of all, unusually well supplied for this mission. They had more men than usual, assuming some of those French regulars chose to stick around. And the governor probably made sure that all of their ships were well provisioned with powder and shot. They were also sailing better ships than was usual, not big ships of the line or even frigates, but the governor would likely have made sure that every captain was sailing at least a well-armed sloop of war. Now, de Groff and André Zun were sailing their own ships, but the lesser-known captains, or smaller-time captains, would have had an upgrade. Open boats and periaguas wouldn't have cut it for this mission. And then there was the question of Cartagena's defenses. There were all of those forts and all of those guns that made the impregnable lagoon But the real threat at Cartagena wasn't there right now. For many months during the year, Cartagena hosted one or another of Spain's great fleets. The Armada de Barlavento frequently made their home in Cartagena. When the Armada wasn't there, one of the treasure fleets was likely to be there loading up on silver, but that treasure fleet would deter any pirates that might stray too close. And when there was a division of the Spanish Navy in the West Indies, they usually called at both Cartagena and Havana. But right now, in November 1683, the Armada de Barlavento, the windward fleet, was away at Campeche, hunting down rovers. Those treasure fleets, well, they were back in Europe for the winter. And all those royal Spanish naval ships, well, they were occupied back in Europe. A French army under Marshal Francois Joseph, Marquis de Croquet, was marching on Luxembourg with a concerning amount of artillery. The Spanish were transporting as many troops from Spain to the Spanish Netherlands as was possible, as fast as their ships could sail, but they had to pass by miles of French coastline, which also took them near to England, so the navy was otherwise engaged. That means that at this point, Cartagena was relatively lightly guarded, and it was relative. There might not be any ships of real note there to fight off an invasion, but there were still those five forts, there were still hundreds of cannon, and there were thousands of Spanish soldiers there. De Graff had faced overwhelming odds at Veracruz, and he had used stealth and cunning and tactics to overcome them, but Cartagena wouldn't fall so easily. But here's... What I think is the main reason that the pirates chose to attack Cartagena. This wasn't a pirate raid. This was a military venture. Now, the plan had been to attack Santiago de Cuba, but they sort of killed off the major who was supposed to lead that expedition. Most historians take that as a sign that the pirates were going rogue, that they were sailing off to steal booty and plunder and such. 
And yeah, they planned to find plunder, they were privateers after all, but then they planned to go back to Petit Guave. After killing a French army major, that was the only place they had to return to, that was the closest thing they had to a home, so they had to make good on their commission. They had orders to do mischief against the Spanish. If they raided Santiago de Cuba, as the plan had been, while most of their strength was now in their ships and Santiago de Cuba would be a land-based attack, if they raided Portobello or Campeche or any of the other usual buccaneer targets, well, it would look like they just killed the major and went off to do some old-fashioned pirating. They needed to pull off something big and something bold that would hurt Spain, something that would damage Spanish morale while bolstering the French position in the West Indies. Their job here was to do something that King Louis could rub in Spain's nose back in Europe to prove just how powerful he was, how impotent Spain was to stop him. And the timing here, it just couldn't be more perfect. It's so synchronistic that I cannot believe it was happenstance. On December 22nd, the French army under Marshal Francois Joseph had arrived outside Luxembourg. Around noon, they began a barrage of heavy mortars against the city that pummeled Luxembourg's walls in a steady, slow, unceasing drumbeat. It wasn't the flurry of mortar fire you might think of from World War I, but it was dozens of heavy cannon firing every few minutes, striking the walls of Luxembourg. The siege continued throughout the night. Soldiers worked in shifts, and that kept the inhabitants of Luxembourg up throughout the night. 5,000 miles away, the very next day, December 23rd, the governor of Cartagena, Juan de Pando Estrada, first learned of the fleet off his coast approaching his city. There were eight ships in the fleet. Two of them were frigates, and six of them were sloops of war. They were commanded by none other than what the Spanish called Lorencillo. This was the sort of news that nobody in the West Indies would be happy to hear. Lorencillo had attacked and occupied Veracruz itself. Governor Estrada knew his soldiers could defend the city, but he had no ships to repel Lorencillo, and the pirates could do untold damage from the sea. So the governor commandeered the three ships in Cartagena Harbor that might be able to repel the pirates. Two of them were slavers. They were large, sturdy ships, which he outfitted with guns and enough men to sail them. There was the 40-gun San Francisco and the 34-gun Paz. They were to form a line to block the entrance to the harbor and prevent the pirates from entering the bay. Then the governor outfitted a smaller galliot to combat the pirates. This was a sort of swift, shallow gunboat. It had no more than a single mast with sails on the fore and aft, and a set of oars that would help it to move around quickly uh, around the naval battlefield. Estrada outfitted her with 28 guns and a heavy mortar. That was the type used to bombard stone walls, very much like was happening in Luxembourg, and hopefully that gun would be able to sink a few of those pirate sloops. The ships were under command of the 26-year-old naval officer André de Perez and crewed with 800 men who rushed to get them ready for battle. The fleet under Lorho de Graff, Mikhail Andrézun, Jan Willems, François Lesage, Pierre Le Picard, and François Groinet waited for the morning to sail on Cartagena to do battle. Back in Luxembourg, the siege continued. 
The mortars hadn't ceased all throughout the night, and come dawn, they continued their steady drumbeat. Now, I should mention that all those cannon could eventually break through Luxembourg's walls, but not with ease. The city would have erected a sturdy wooden palisade around the heavy stone walls. These would have been tree trunks, large pieces of lumber that could actually absorb a lot of the cannon blows. And compared to the fast-moving, highly explosive mortars that we're used to, these were really just large grenades that moved relatively slowly. But the constant drumbeat of cannon fire, combined with the rather large army outside the walls, well, it was a sort of psychological warfare that was breaking down the morale of Luxembourg with every concussion. Back in the West Indies, a few hours later, the pirate fleet weighed anchor. They unfurled their sails, and they moved on Cartagena. Those three Spanish vessels were in the best possible position to defend the harbor. They had complementary fire from nearby forts. If they stayed put and they held their ground, they might just chase the pirates off. Now, we only have cursory accounts of the battle that follows. If you take what we do know of the battle and combine that with the tactics of the buccaneers, tactics that they were fond of, it probably looked something like this. That French and Dutch fleet would have split into three units. The first unit would have been two sloops following de Graaf and La Francesca, and they would have made for the San Francisco. That was the flagship of the Spanish. The second unit would have been another two sloops following André Zun and La Tigra, and that would have headed for La Paz. The last two sloops, probably led by Jan Willems, would have sailed for the Galio. The two frigates, La Francesca and La Tigra, would have engaged the slave ships directly. They would be able to trade heavy volleys with the larger ships and generally give as good as they got. Their two escorts, the smaller sloops, they would have swarmed around the two freighters. One sloop would sit opposite the frigate and occupy the Spanish on deck with grape shot and musket fire and the threat of aborting. The other sloop would sit aft of the Spanish vessel, near the helm, where they could pick off anyone who tried to take the wheel and maneuver the ship into a better position. The third unit would occupy the Galio, which actually might be the most dangerous job of the three. The two freighters were heavily armed, but the pirates kept them from being able to maneuver very much, but the Galio was quick and she was nimble and she had that mortar, so she could dance around the pirates and fire back with at least equal firepower. Now that's very much how the battle at Panama under John Coxon had gone. There were a number of smaller ships swarming over larger, more powerful ships, but outmaneuvering them. They were outfiring them, and they wore them down. The Spanish traded musket fire with the pirates for a few hours, but this was a hastily assembled defense. These soldiers were well-armed, and they were well-trained. They were Spanish regulars, but they weren't a navy. This wasn't an armada. These foot soldiers were at the very best marines that were accompanied by a, a smattering of merchant sailors who were forced into a fight that they weren't trained for. And the pirates, well, they were the best in the world. With the exception of Michel de Gramont and the English pirates who were laying low, this was the Brethren of the Coast. They had cut their teeth on the Franco-Dutch War. They were engaging in that war on raids that looked almost exactly like this. They would sail in, surround the enemy navy, and dismantle it. Finally, after four hours of heavy fighting, Lorenzo attempted uh, boarding of the San Francisco, but the ship slipped away. 
However, in this little lagoon, there wasn't much room to move. Those two larger ships were supposed to hold their position, so when the San Francisco fled, she ran aground on a sandbar. When the La Paz saw this, she struck her colors and surrendered, which left the Galio open to be boarded by Williams. The smoke cleared, and the pirates found that they had lost 20 men. The Spanish, on the other hand, lost 90. The casualties were disparate, but not huge on either side. Still, the Spanish naval defense of Cartagena was broken. So, the pirates took the Spanish soldiers prisoner and began to sort themselves out. The Spanish ships were outfitted for battle by the governor, but that meant there wasn't any plunder on board to speak of. However, those vessels, for now, were prize enough. Lorjo de Graaf got the Spanish flagship San Francisco back in the water and made her his new vessel. He renamed her the Fortune. Mikhail Andrizun took command of La Paz and renamed her the Rascal. The other ships in the French fleet were similarly handed down. Jan Willems took command of La Francesca. Francois Lesage took over La Tigre, and their ships were likely handed down to probably Picard and Groenet. The following day, Christmas Day, 1683, the bombardment of Luxembourg continued. That's not an accidental choice, either. If you bombard a city for days, that's bad enough. But if you do it over Christmas, well, that's an extra kick in the teeth that people tend to notice. Off the Spanish main, the pirates went about their business. The fighting was over now, but they set about to blockade the harbor. They wanted to hold Cartagena for ransom. Probably, since they had those large new two ships, some of the smaller crews would have come aboard the Fortune and the Rascal, and they would have abandoned the smaller sloops in the fleet. They would have transferred all the guns and the provisions and the materials, but then they would have sunk them just outside the harbor, as well as the Galio, to prevent anyone from entering or escaping the harbor. Then they sent the Spanish prisoners back to Cartagena. This might seem counterintuitive, but they held the entire city hostage. And, anyway, soldiers make poor bargaining chips, plus they didn't need the extra mouths to feed. They did give the soldiers a message to carry back to Governor Estrada. They thanked him for the Christmas presents. See, this timing here wasn't a coincidence either. It served the same psychological purpose as the Siege of Luxembourg, and I would argue that this Battle of Cartagena was timed purposefully to coincide with the Siege of Luxembourg. The next day, December 26th, Boxing Day to the British, the French cannons ceased their bombardment of Luxembourg. They'd spent days shelling the city with over 4,000 mortar shells. That was a huge number of shells at the time, and then they stopped. They pulled back. They wouldn't return to lay siege to Luxembourg until the spring. There wasn't an encroaching Spanish defense on the way. There wasn't discontent in the French ranks. This was the plan. All throughout November and early December, France took towns and forts all across the region. They burned a few others to the ground, and then they spent four days bombarding Luxembourg ceaselessly. But then they pulled back. Now, the coldest months of the year were in front of them. But if that were the reason they pulled back, then why bother bombarding Luxembourg at all? Why not just save your strength and wait until spring? I think it's all part of that 
psychological warfare that Louis was playing at here. He showed the Spanish Netherlands and the Spanish Empire and the Habsburgs in general, the most powerful political force in the world, that he could strike them with impunity. Whenever he chose, he took away Christmas from them just to show them that they were never safe, not unless they capitulated to his demands. And what's more, news arrived shortly thereafter from the New World of an attack on Cartagena, one of their jewels in the Spanish Empire. There he showed the Habsburgs that they weren't safe anywhere, at any time. He was so powerful that he could attack whenever and wherever he chose, anywhere on the globe. So... When the war started up again, come spring, back in Europe, it was brief. King Charles II of England arbitrated a peace, and Louis got nearly everything he wanted. He was in control, finally, of Luxembourg and Strasbourg. That gave him command of the west bank of the Rhine. That put him in a powerful military position. The treaty, after the War of the Reunions, extracted a promise from Louis. He promised to give the Habsburg Empire, both the Spanish and the Holy Roman Empire, 20 years of peace. That was a promise that he would break in four years. And I should be clear here and say that the official French record says that de Graaf and his crew were acting outside of the law. It calls them pirates. Now, the privateers did kill their major. They did attack a city different from where the official record claims they were ordered to attack. So, this is all my opinion, and it's based on some circumstantial evidence. But I would argue that those pirates were a part of the War of the Reunions. There in Cartagena, well, that was a war that, in Louis' eyes, was just an extension of a war that had never really ended. He entered into temporary peace every once in a while, but every few years he would send his armies back in to press his claims on Habsburg lands. And every time he did, every time the French army with all its might under some august nobleman marched into the Spanish Netherlands, the governors in Saint-Dominique and the other French colonies in the West Indies suddenly had the authority to give out many more letters of mark, even though later on, they would claim they were acting as pirates. And the goal of de Graaf and his compatriots here wasn't to enter Cartagena. If they were behaving as the pirates had when they were acting more as pirates, they would have occupied the city, plundered her of all her wealth, but they didn't. Now, that might just be because they couldn't, it was too strongly defended, but I think it's also because this was a military mission or at least what they could salvage of a military mission. And the pirates weren't pirates here. They were privateers. They were still trying to act under a commission from the governor of Saint-Dominique. That was under the authority of Louis Fourteenth. The convention in recent scholarship has been to blur the distinction between pirates and privateers. Now, that trend seems to be fading lately, but it's not always inaccurate. It's a blurry line, and the same captains that might engage in piracy one day might engage in privateering the next. But these privateers here, they weren't flying the Jolly Roger. They flew the flag of France. This mission, this battle outside Cartagena, is so much more like the raids that France and the Netherlands and the Spanish and the English undertook during the Franco-Dutch War than anything the Brethren of the Coast did on their own. And then... You need to look at what happened after the battle. The 
privateers blockaded the harbor at Cartagena for about two weeks. Then, an English merchant convoy arrived, led by the HMS Ruby. One of the captains was Dutch, and he had a letter for Lorho de Graaf from his wife. Lorencio was married to a Spaniard back on the Canary Islands. This suggests that the Spanish name for him, Lorencio, might actually be more accurate than we think, but we can't be sure. His wife had news for him, though. Spain was offering him a pardon. It was offering him a place in Havana if he would bring his wife and re-enter service to the Spanish crown. If you'll remember far back, he was pressed into service by the Spanish Navy years ago. But they weren't offering him a position on one of their ships now. They were courting him as Lorho de Graaf, the most skilled privateer in the world. They wanted him to serve as a privateer in the employ of Spain. And that's not crazy. Quite a few Dutchmen took Spain up on that offer during the war, but not de Graaf. He wrote a letter back to the Spanish, declining their offer. And one can assume here he wrote a letter back to his wife. So he traded with the English merchant convoy, but then he left the harbor at Cartagena. He hadn't extracted his ransom, he just felt it was time to go. Only a few days out, he stumbled upon two Spanish vessels. In an act that seems to punctuate his refusal to accept that pardon, he chose to capture those Spanish vessels. On the second of those ships, he found an entire crew of English merchants held prisoner in the brig. They told de Graaf that this was in fact an English vessel. It had been taken by Spanish privateers, and they were being transported to Havana for arrest and presumably execution. A few days later, a letter arrived in Port Royal for Governor Lynch. It was from Lorho de Graaf himself. The letter read, quote, I present my humble respects and hope that your health is good. I have a few details to give you about a small English ship laden with sugar, which I found in the hands of a Spaniard. I took both ships in the night, kept the Spaniard, and set the Englishman free. The English captain told me that the Spaniard was taking him and his ship to Havana, but I gave him the ship back without doing him any harm. I send this short note only to show you that I am far from injuring your nation, but on the contrary, am anxious always to do its service. End quote. This was the second such note that Lynch had received from de Graaf. The governor, back in Port Royal, wrote to his superiors in London, who gave him permission to write to de Graaf, quote, I have received your three letters, and thank you most particularly for letting the poor Irishman go. I shall show my gratitude to you when I have opportunity, for anyone who treats the English well lays me under obligation, and I expect no less from you who hold a patent from the Most Christian King. And right here, the Most Christian King means Louis Fourteenth. Back to the quote. Francois Le Sage behaves very differently, for he has frequently injured and insulted our ships, and has by present report sixty pirates on board his ship from La Trompousse. And again, La Trompousse was the ship of Jean Hamelin. Back to the quote. While you behave with such respect to the justice and friendship that exist between the Dutch and English crowns, I am always your friend. End quote. De Graaf was courting the English, and he was offering Lynch his service and his loyalty. It seemed that Lynch had offered him a home in Port Royal. 
the English wound up offering him land and passage for his wife, with a promise to secure a pardon from Spain for de Graff. They even offered to pay any legal fees he might encounter, as well as a job. For the time being, though, de Graff couldn't sail for Port Royal. He was expected in Petit Guave. Now, if you killed a French army major and disobeyed the governor's orders, would you return to his home to meet with him? I don't know that I would. De Graff might have expected arrest or imprisonment or even hanging, but it doesn't appear that he did. Instead, Lorho Cornelis Boudouin de Graff was greeted warmly by the governor. They met personally, and the governor granted de Graff a breve de grace. This was sort of a governor's version of a knighthood. It symbolized official and eternal thanks from the governor for de Graff's service to the people of France. It was an honorary commission. It was a sign that de Graff was always welcome in Saint-Dominique. Now I ask you, does that sound like how you treat a pirate? Next time, we're going to pick up the pace. I intended to cover the Battle at Cartagena and the War of the Reunions only briefly, but I wanted to point out that these men who had been freebooters, who had been brethren of the coast acting outside of the law as pirates so often, were re-entering service. They were now back to being full-time privateers, just as many of the English were currently trying their hand at sticking to the law, the French were doing the same thing. This was the first step in bringing the pirates back into the fold, and it was France's next step in ending the Age of the Bouganis. We're going to try to pick up the pace next week, I should say. The next voyage of the buccaneers had a chronicler aboard, so we know a lot more about it. However, I've been lingering here in the Caribbean, following de Graff and Grammont for longer than I should, I've been hesitant to move on. This is a fascinating time, but next time we're going to cover the rest of their story, and we're going to reach the end of Buccaneering in the West Indies. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, as well as everyone who has helped support the show. Many of you have left reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the show, and that always helps out. Others of you have given us mentions on Twitter, Facebook, or Reddit, and that helps out the show as well. And many of you have helped us out by becoming patrons at Patreon. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you should certainly do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, where you can see photos, show notes, and listen to the episodes. Or you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube, or at the Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and most importantly, Thank you for listening.
Tonight.